Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. The Lord be with you. And I look forward to sharing the Word of God tonight. Um, Very quickly, let me remind you one more time that we are taking orders, pre-orders, for uh, my new book, This Son of Mine, and... Every copy that is pre-ordered, I will sign it, and it comes also with special postage. And so go to our website and make sure you get your order in. And also don't forget the first weekend of December is our retreat, and I'm amazed it's already persons are booking from all over the place. And so make sure you have your place. Okay. I want to talk tonight about that phrase that, could I say, pepper and salts the epistles of the New Testament. In fact, it's not only the epistles. Jesus um, continually referred to it himself. And that is the, the phrase, in Christ. Everything that we have as believers, and I mean everything, everything, the entire Christian life, the whole concept of the gospel is summed up in the New Testament in those two words, in Christ. If we don't understand what that means, then we are really having a problem because we'll not understand the foundation upon which our whole faith is built. And so I'm going to approach it, uh, and maybe from a very different way, rather than just try to explain what it means, I'm going to go into the Old Testament. Now, let, let me say this. The Old Testament is not just a jumbled heap of stories about a very, very, very ancient people who lived a very, very, very long time ago. And um, that's how it's presented to many, many persons, maybe those listening tonight. Your knowledge of the Old Testament is that, uh, some story that was told you in Sunday school from a heap of stories and no idea the why of it and where it's leading, where it comes from. Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, tells us how to read the Old Testament. He said, uh, a few hours after he'd risen from the dead, as if to say, now you can understand it, and it says, beginning at Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, beginning at Moses, and all the prophets, which takes in the rest of the Old Testament, it says that he expounded that Old Testament and showed them it was all about him. He says, 
to them on the night of his resurrection that he is the sole subject of the Old Testament. And if we read it any other way, if we try to just read it as stories, they don't make ultimate sense, except just as stories that hang in a void. If we try to explain it, and hear me on this one, if we try to explain the Old Testament as if it's all about the nation of Israel, we totally missed it. Jesus said it's all about him. And and so you could put it like this, Jesus is the, the person of history. And he casts his shadow back, all the way back to creation. And, and you find him all through the Old Testament in these, what can I say, it was real history. It really happened to the persons of the Old Testament, but their lives in what happened to them, how it happened to them, their feelings, their expressions, they became incredible shadows of the one who is to come. The real is Jesus. The real lives of these people in the Old Testament were shadowing the coming real one. And sometimes um, we can understand what Jesus did a lot better by looking back there in the Old Testament and letting those stories feed us the truth that they offer. The very first statement, the very first statement about Jesus, well, yeah, I... <laughs> Actually, the first statement about Jesus is Genesis 1, where it says that in the beginning, the Word of God called creation into being, and that was Jesus. But in the sense I'm, I'm talking, the person of Jesus and what he came to do, the very first statement of that is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Jesus is presented as being, number one, a member of the human race. He said he would be born of the woman, seed of the woman. He would be born into our world, our creation, our race, the human race, through the birth canal of woman. And he would be of us, one of us, uh, and yet he is the gift of God given to us. And he comes as the champion or the hero who is going to deliver the human race from the lie and therefore the authority, or as that verse calls it, the headship of Satan. That was the entire plan of God summed up in a sentence in Genesis 3.15 immediately upon mankind's sin. In a sense, that shapes the rest of the Bible. That's what it's about, the coming of this hero, the coming of this champion human, yet a human who is uniquely God the gift and he is coming to deliver us from our arch enemy, the liar, Satan. And that's shadowed. It's there all through the Old Testament it comes through. And above all others in the Old Testament, the one that I believe 
it shadows most, comes through the most, is in the life of David. And in the experiences David went through, even though they were genuine experiences that he went through in the unfolding of life, and yet again and again, there are shadows, there are echoes of Jesus who was yet to come by a couple of thousand years. Um, Not a thousand years, but... um, when David wrote his psalms, we hear the voice of Jesus in them. Um, so David is the king in a very real sense. He's the first king of Israel. Uh, prior to that, he was the shepherd, and he defined king in Israel as shepherd king. And he's the first one to coin the expression Messiah the anointed one, the king anointed by God to achieve the purpose of God, David. And when the prophet spoke, sometimes they spoke of Jesus who was to come, but they called Jesus David. That's how close it was. And when Jesus arrives, he is called the son of David because he was in direct genealogy back to David. Very tight closed in here. So I want to look at David because in David's life we see what that New Testament expression in Christ, we can catch a glimpse of it and sometimes to see it in a story helps us understand what otherwise would tend to be abstract. So come with me back to the very first days of... (laughs) when I began in what one might call full-time ministry and I talked to children and I spent my days telling Bible stories to children. So gather round and let's listen to a story from the Old Testament. David is a boy in his early teens He'd already secretly been anointed as king. It says there in Samuel that the oil from the the horn that Samuel the prophet carried poured oil all over David. And it says, as the oil of the anointing came upon him, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Um, That didn't change the fact that as far as his family was concerned his father, his brothers, David was insignificant. That's putting it mildly. They, they seemed to despise him. There was a certain almost embarrassment about him. When Samuel had come to find the next king of Israel, uh, the, Jesse, the old man, he, he called all of his sons, but not David. <clears throat> he left David out in the hills looking after the sheep. As far as they, they all were concerned, if you'll never find a king like David. I forget him. He's a kid. He, he's a shepherd. Never amount to anything. You know, there's nothing to this fellow. And so 
they, they did, it was Samuel who said, the Lord keeps telling me there's somebody else. And then, and almost, I say, embarrassed, they said, well, we've, we've got another younger brother, young son, he, he's off there. Well, get him. And, and as soon as he came in, this kid, he couldn't have been more than 13, 14 years old. And Samuel heard the voice of God, said, that's the chap, that's the fellow. And he was anointed. But it was secret. Saul, who was the then king of Israel, but a total failure, um, didn't know about it. It was done in secret. It was between the family, Samuel, and God. And then they sent him back off to the hills. They don't want him around anymore. And so he goes back with the oil still glistening on the back of his neck and well that that was David and so it went I would say what a couple of years maybe maybe three and there is war it was the Philistines who were invading from the coasts of Israel the Philistines now, they show up quite a bit in the history books of the Old Testament, Philistines. They, they were persons, although they, they lived on the very edge of Israel, somewhere between Egypt and the southern Israel, that they were continually, it says they were uncircumcised, which means they were outside of the covenant. They were nothing to do with Israel, though they were very close neighbors. And they, they wanted Canaan. They wanted to move in and take over where Israel lived. Uh, there was a sense they needed to. You see, the Philistines, just, just to introduce the, the fellows of our story, um, the Philistines they were from Crete, the island of Crete originally. Uh, they were, if, if you know what the Greeks look like, well, the Philistines were Greek in that sense. They were, they were, they were from Crete, but they were Greek-looking, swarthy chaps. Uh, they were tall, muscular, we know that much. A and the, they were... I call them the Vikings of the Old Testament because they weren't Vikings, but they, they were in many senses the same as Vikings. Um, in my long-distant ancestry, I'm Viking. And um, so I, I, I kind of find my ancestors in what they did. They, they, they were a warring bunch. They left Crete and started swarming out to find other lands to live in. And, and so they came in their boats, and they were warriors, as I said, tall fellows, but, but they wore armor, they, and their armor was bronze by choice, and also they wore a sort of headdress, and so they were tall enough, but now they stuck this headdress and, and, and the, the bronze armor, and when they went to war, they made sure the sun was shining at them, so it shone almost blinding their enemies they looked terrifying and, and and they came and they conquered they they were well as i said like the vikings and the picture there is you know eating a great turkey leg and a quaff of beer well we've actually dug up some of their cities and found 
some of the biggest beer mugs in, in the ancient world. They enjoyed their beer. They enjoyed uh, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we fight. That was the Philistine. Drinking warriors. And they wanted Canaan, the land that belonged to Israel. And so they come up to war. And among these tall Greek-looking Philistines, there were some families that were giants. And I use that term not as um, Grimm's fairy story giants, but in the sense of giantism, um, they, they, they measured approximately nine feet tall. There, there are tribes in Africa that are as big as that. It's not fairy story stuff, and they were proportioned according to their height, and and their armor would almost take a truck to carry around. And there, there were just families within these already tall people, and, and to see such a sight, all decked in armor, was indeed terrifying. And so, when the Philistines come up and war is declared. And Saul, as I've already referred, he was the king of Israel. He was king, but in a real sense, he wasn't chosen by God. It wasn't time for a king when he became king, and he was of the wrong tribe. The prophecies had always said, the king, whenever he comes, shall be of Judah, the tribe of Judah. He came from Benjamin, wrong tribe. And... He was given because the people of Israel said, we want a king. Well, why do you want a king, said Samuel the prophet. Well, we want to be like everybody else, they said. And what's everybody else? Well, everybody else has a king, and we don't. God rules us, and it's awfully difficult, you see, because we can't see him. And, and, and so we, we feel sort of awkward among the nations. We, we have a God we can't see, and we say, he's our king. And so give us a king. We, we want a chap with a crown on his head. You know, and sit on a throne and be in a palace and feel like everybody else. And so they got Saul. They got Saul... One reason was he was the tallest chap in, in Israel, at least there in the southern peoples, a big fellow. And he was chosen to be king. And I feel sorry for Saul in many ways. He, he came into a position that wasn't supposed to be there. He didn't want it. It was all because these people wanted to be like everybody else. And so he wasn't prepared for the job. And, and he approached it like, I mean, what, what's my model to be a king? I do like all the other kings around me. And so he's not a man, shall I say, he's not a man of God. He doesn't understand that God has entered into covenant with this people. He doesn't understand that the presence of God was their uniqueness on the face of the earth. He didn't understand that the Lord was his wisdom, the Lord was his guide, the Lord was the protection of this people. He didn't understand any of that. The idea of covenant was just ancient history, something that 
Well, that's how we got started a long time ago with Moses, but that's that. We're just now trying to make it all work. And so when it came to war, he faced war like any other king of that time in that region. And he conscripted his army. And so they go marching out to meet the Philistines on the western era borders of Israel. And it's a bunch of frightened soldiers who who wished they could be anywhere else except where they were marching toward the Philistines. And I think Saul would actually wish to be somewhere else. Uh, they're not excited about this. And they come to the valley of Elah and, and, and they stand on the slope of one sort of high hill come mountain and and the Philistines are on the other side of the valley and there they are facing off and the battle's going to take place down there in the valley when I took some folks to Israel this was uh, for me anyway a high point of the trip we went to the valley of Elah and we reenacted this whole story standing right where this happened quite a thought but um, here they stand uh, and, and as I said, they're, they're not too excited to start with. But when they look across that valley and see the Philistines, as I've described them, it's terrifying. There was something menacing about these warriors that are hungry for land. And I might say the Hebrew people essentially were small. They weren't big people. And so if the Philistines were tall people, and the Israelites already had to look up to them somewhat. But then it happened. And we are in 1 Samuel and chapter 17. And I strongly urge you to read through this story. It was written by somebody who was there. There's little bits in there that could only be written by somebody who was there. And it says that Goliath comes lumbering out from the battle lines of the Philistines. As I said, approximately nine feet tall. In a brass armor that shone in such a fashion made him look even bigger. And on top of his great monstrous head, there's a headdress that makes him even look taller. Goliath, gigantic Philistine, uncouth, rude, mocking. And he announces himself as something that we do not have in our modern ideas of warfare or anything like it, but it it was known in these days. He announces himself as, and the word that they would use in those days would be middleman. Uh, uh, The word today would be representative. He came and he says, in effect, in effect, he was saying that all of the Philistine army, and of course behind the army, all the place that they presently lived in, It was all met in him. He said he summed up in himself all the soldiers behind him. And he calls to Israel. He's come right across. He comes down 
the hillside and across the valley. That must have been time-taking. When you're that big and with that amount of armor, you're just a lumbering across there. And, and now he's standing and they, they, they can see his face and they can almost smell his foul breath. He, he, he's as close. He's looking at them. And, and, and he's saying to Israel, come on. You, you, you're, you're the slaves of this man Saul. You're a bunch of cowards. Give me a hero. Give me a champion. Give me somebody from your ranks that will sum up Israel and let's fight. And whoever wins, that's the end of the war. Let the whole war be fought in two people. And nobody in the ranks of Israel moved. In fact, in verse 24, there in chapter 17, it says, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. I think that sums it up. He hasn't even spoken yet, and they're already backing away, ready to run for their lives. The whole jolly army of Israel, and there's only one man looking at them, and, and that's enough. It says when they saw the man, they fled. And it doesn't say they were afraid. They, they were dreadfully afraid. There was that sense of dread. You, you know what that is, dread. It's more than fear. It is that lead weight within your spirit of utter hopelessness and despair within your fear. And it says he did that every morning and every evening. Huh. And so they all draw up in battle lines every morning and he comes over and issues his challenge, gets bolder, ruder, more uncouth every day. No one moves, no one says a word, and he goes back and comes back at night and issues a challenge again. And it says that went on for six weeks. Six weeks every day, twice a day. That's 80 times he presented himself. Can you get inside the head of an Israelite at that point? I mean, yeah, dread. Uh, uh, where's this going? It's got to end. It's got to end. Can't go on forever. And when it ends, it won't be pretty. They felt hopeless. There, there was not a man among them that even considered the possibility of going out there. They're gripped by fear. Terror even would be another good word. They're demoralized. I mean, they're ashamed. They can't even look each other in the eye. And they're echoing. They can hear his voice. It seems to keep in the atmosphere all day. You yellow-bellied cowards. There's not a hero among you. Not a man with any courage and so on and so on. You see, fear hopelessness, negativity, cringing before whatever life is presenting to us, it all arises from what we believe. 
You, you understand, joy doesn't just hit you across the face. Joy is a result of what you believe. Hope is a result of what you believe. And these people did not believe the covenant God of Israel. You've got all the books of the Bible right up to 1 Samuel 17. God had given himself and given himself and given himself and spoken his word and his promises in almost every chapter. And they didn't believe it. It was just words, just words. There's no place for a living, real God in their thinking. Can you imagine what they talked about? I mean, if, 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 if the first days they were demoralized, can you, can you imagine after all the negative talk that went on by the end of that six weeks? What's wrong with this picture? Well, you see, and I can't go into it in great detail here, but in Deuteronomy chapter 20, it's worth the read, the first verses, Deuteronomy 20. That's where really the entire stories of the Old Testament are explained. It, it says that when persons come up against you to do war, that is, when someone wants to take your land, when you're being faced with such injustice, at such a time, let the high priest come out, the, the representative of God, and let him tell you plainly, do not be afraid, don't, 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 don't be upset. Well, let me quickly read it. He says, when you go out to battle against your enemies, see horses, chariots, people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. And remember, he brought you out of the land of Egypt, so anything else is peanuts. So it shall be that when you're on the verge of battle, then the priest comes and speaks to you, and he shall say, Today you're on the verge of battle. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble. Do not be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God, he goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Or another expression when this is repeated, it says the battle is the Lord's. And so then it says that the general in charge of the army comes and says, in the light of what the priest has just said, if God is with us, then really we don't need everybody here, do we? And he would say, have you just got married? Well, you don't need to be here. Go home and enjoy your, your newlywed wife. And if you just built a house, well, you don't need to be here, do you? Go home and enjoy your house. And have you planted a vineyard? Well, go home and harvest the grapes. And they're dropping out of their ranks like flies. Everybody's packing their bags and going home. And then he looks around. He said, anybody here scared? You better go. We don't want bad apples in the barrel. They'll, they'll affect it. Well, there weren't too many left when that was done. He says, okay, now the battle is the Lord's. The Lord is with us and he shall use whatever's left and he shall be glorified in this. That is 
the biblical way, the battles of these covenant people when their enemies attack them, that's how they should do it. Well, obviously Saul either didn't know that was in his Bible, or if he did, he regarded it more as religious poetry, you know, something that was all very nice to be read in church, but don't even think that it has any reference to real life. I mean, it makes no sense, does it? Get rid of half the army? I mean, looking around this bunch, everybody would go home and Saul, the king, would probably lead the way. No, they, they had no reference to Deuteronomy 20 whatsoever. Instead, Saul, the king, he tried to manipulate their senses. He said, anybody that will go and fight this monster... I tell you what, I'll give you my daughter as wife. You'll, you'll become a prince with a princess for your wife. Nobody budged. I, the, the, the princess in the minds of those fellows looked suddenly the ugliest woman on the planet. And then he said, I, I tell you what, if you'll go and fight, then... You'll be tax-free. You and all your family be tax-free for the rest of your life. And they just stared back at him. Dead men don't pay taxes anyway, so... No one was interested. No one moved. And so it was for six weeks. And at that time, back on the ranch, old man Jesse wants to know what's happening with his sons who were in that battle. And this was before Facebook. This was before Twitter. This was before cell phones. And so, if you want to know what's going on, you'd better go find out. And so he called David. I would say by this time would be probably around 15 max. And he gave David some goodies for his brothers and a special bag for the commander of the battalion that they were in and says, now, now you go and give them these things and find out what's happening. He didn't know, nor did David know, that in fact this was the love of God giving to this people who trembled at the battlefront. This was God's love gift to them. David was the gift of God to all of Israel. He was, to use another biblical expression, he was a man sent from God. Though, as I say, they didn't realize what was happening at the time. And so he came. And he arrived at the camp, and, and, and the look, I mean, the, he looks, I think, younger than he really was, and he was young enough, um, because he didn't shave yet, and the Bible makes special, but he had rosy cheeks, I mean, he looked like a little kid. And he, and he came and he's beaming all over. He's excited beside himself for he's at the battlefront. And he can't wait to see his big brothers all in the battle. And 
and he comes with a full knowledge of the covenant. It is amazing to me where he got that knowledge because you couldn't go to Barnes and Noble and buy a book on the covenant. You'd have to get that from the priests and the Levites and the scrolls of the law. But he knew the covenant. He knew it as part of his very breath, even at that age. And so he speaks and questions with hope. Hope in God. Hope in God's promises. He speaks with faith. He's excited. This is what Deuteronomy 20 is all about, and I'm about to see it. And as he's unloading his pack, he hears the roar of the monster's voice, sneering, mocking, cursing the God of Israel and the men who quavered before him. And he runs. And he listens bug-eyed to what Goliath is roaring and sneering at the people. And, and, and questions, you know, there's only a young teenager can question, especially one that was expecting to see the glory of God made manifest against those who would crush them. And he talks to his brothers it's almost as if he's saying to his brothers, who's going to be first to go? Until he realizes this has been going on for six weeks. His brothers, ashamed of their own unbelief, I suppose, or inactivity, and, and they turn on David and they, they mock him. They say, what are you doing here? You've left your sheep to come and see the battle. Go back to your sheep and look, that's where you belong. Leave this to the experts. We know what we're doing. Huh. But he goes away from his brothers and he keeps talking, keeps asking uh, until everybody's aware. There's somebody here who actually believes that the God who spoke to Moses can defeat this giant. And so the news traveled like that. I mean, no one had talked like that ever. And, and so the news traveled very fast, all the way to the tents of Saul the king. And Saul summons whoever this is who's turned up and is talking like this. Can't hardly believe his own ears. Somebody said they'll go and face Goliath. Bring him here. And so the flaps of his tent open and the champion walks in, a kid with rosy cheeks, who doesn't shave. A kid. And he's dressed in the unique clothing of the shepherd, which was just a little tunic and a belt around and a little purse on the side that contained stones and a slingshot and a stick in his hand. I can see Saul's mouth fall open, dear Lord God, he's come to this. Huh. And he says, oh, come on, come on, come on. Big talk, little boy, but um, no way. That, that fellow out there has spent his life fighting. And, huh. 
David comes on my qualification. He says, I'm a shepherd. And he says, my flock has been attacked by lion, by bear. And I, with my own bare hands, killed them off in the name of this God of covenant who is with me, even with me, to make me the best kind of shepherd. And he said, I'll go and face that man in the same covenant presence that attended me as a shepherd. But this time Saul will take anything. I said, okay, I mean, this thing's got to end someday and you being a mangled heap out there, at least we'll get something started. And so he says, uh, give that boy my armor. <laughs> it's the daftest thing I've ever read in the Bible. Give him his armor. Remember, Saul was the tallest man in Israel. And, and they, they put this armor on this shepherd boy. And on top of that, armor is heavy stuff to wear if you're not used to it, even if you are used to it. And so David stands there with armor that's hopelessly too big and is weighing him down to the ground. He doesn't know how to handle the, the sword. Or... He looks like an idiot. Clumsy, could hardly move a leg. And he says, I, I, I can't, I can't, I know. He said, if I go out there, I'm going the same way as I face lions and bears. And so they take it off. And he looks again, just like this shepherd kid. Huh. I mean, he looks a weakness. They were back, insignificant. No wonder his brothers laughed at his big words. But he is clothed in something invisible. He's trusting in the covenant presence, that oath of God. That God says, I am with you. I'm around you. I'm ahead of you. I am your strength. I am your protection. He simply believed that. It never occurred to him that that was from a distant day. And the God that he knew was the living God. That's the expression that he used, the living God. That is, he's not an idol. He's not a figment of our imagination. He doesn't need protecting. He's alive and he protects his own covenant oath by protecting us. The soldiers wanted to hide their heads and Saul felt he was sending someone to a suicide mission. That kid went out with a stick in his hand and a slingshot and five stones that he picked up from a brook. But now I want you to get it. This is it. Do you realize, and this is no stretch of imagination, this is in front of us right now, 1 Samuel 17. All of Israel, every man, woman, child in Israel, and specifically those soldiers standing there, they were in David. Do you get that? He, by his own choice, has entered into a solidarity with them. Because he's going out there and whatever happens to him happens to all of Israel. Do you get that? That was the whole point of this war. Philistines want 
the whole of Israel for themselves. They'll massacre everybody and take it, if they can get it. David goes out there and everyone in Israel, and specifically those soldiers, they are in him. What happens to David happens to them. If David dies, we all die. If David's triumphant, we're all triumphant. The entire history of Israel, the destiny of every person, was wrapped up in that kid. The epitome of weakness and helplessness and foolishness. It's all wrapped up in him. And he, David, had totally thrown in his lot with this bunch. I said he stood in solidarity. It means he assumed them. Their contribution was their unbelief, <coughs> their shame, their accepted defeat, their expected slavery. That's, the, that's who they were. Well, he says then, I'll take that. I, I, I become that, and I'm going out there, and I'm going to reverse that. Do, do you get that? Their unbelief, and their shame, and their expectancy of defeat and slavery is going to be reversed in David. David takes it, and his faith reverses it. He becomes Israel, and then as Israel, he believes in the covenant God and faces the power that would destroy Israel. He takes the situation of Israel. He is willing in every sense to die for Israel yet is assured of life and victory. He immersed all his hopes and dreams into Israel. He becomes it. He is the destiny of Israel. They are in him. And in a very real sense, he's in them. He has become them. He's their representative, the middleman, the mediator. Incidentally, and I, I'm just literally throwing this out. He who represents Israel at that moment, one man represents the whole people. He does not go out there placing himself in the hands of God to be punished for Israel's sin. I mean, I've just got through saying that they unbelief, rejection of God and his covenant and all the shame and everything that went with it. But this representative doesn't come because God is somehow so upset with Israel. He must punish them. No, 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 no. David was God's love gift who would reverse all the destiny that was in their unbelief, he would reverse it with his faith in God. He came and he went out in the presence of God to deliver Israel. 
he would receive a victory that would become Israel's victory. Well, I'll leave that. If you don't understand what I'm getting at, forget it. The cross of Jesus is not about God punishing him so he can reluctantly forgive you. The cross of Jesus is Father and Son, Jesus, who goes as us to bring us salvation and victory. For that's what God loves once. And he has a slingshot in his hand. <laughs> I mean, yes. Goliath laughed at it. Saul of the, the king uh, looked at it in horror. It's not as small a thing as it seems. Weakness is not always defeat. In fact, God has great joy in taking the weakest things on the planet to bring down the greatest powers of darkness. When I was in Israel, the, the shepherds there, the same age as David would be, they had a kind of shepherd Olympics with the same slingshots that David would use. They could stand for hundreds of yards and sling with their slingshot a stone that would cut a blade of grass in two. Um, don't, don't mess with shepherds in Israel or any third world country. But for all that, it did look daft. A little boy going out with a slingshot and holding a, a staff, a stick in his hand, shepherd's stick, with which he could fight if necessary. And Goliath is still lumbering back across the valley. It takes a long time when you're that big and that heavily armored. And, and as he goes back and he realizes there's this kid behind him and he turns around and I mean, I can see the look on his face. Good grief. He said, you what? Am I a dog? You came looking, you came after me with a stick and a slingshot. He's speechless. He said, I came here for a fight. He says, you, you come. And he began to curse David and curse Israel. Using the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to curse with, to mock them even more. And he said, get this over in two minutes. He said, I'll feed you to the coyotes. David said, he looked at him and, and, and huh, he's dancing dancing around because that's something that Goliath couldn't do dance around and it says David said the Lord yes Yahweh our covenant God who delivered me from the paw of the lion oh this one yes you come to me with a sword a spear with a javelin but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied do you know who you messed with you thought you were mocking Israel you don't mock Israel you mock the God of Israel your arms too short to box with God you know he says this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand 
And so it was. Huh. He slings that. And that stone went directly. And in the armor that these Philistines wore, they, they were pretty well covered. But there was a little hole here where the visor went up and down. And that stone, as only a shepherd of Israel with the hand of God in his hand, the stone went right in that hole, brought the man crashing down to make the earth tremble. And then David, it says, hacked off his head, which was highly symbolic to say that the headship, the authority that Philistines would have over Israel is gone. They've lost it. And when Israel, the army, watching this, when they saw that happen, suddenly... Uh, something. They had been incapable of moving, but now they're suddenly full of faith, full of courage, and they're shouting, we won! And they come rushing over the trenches, pouring out toward the hordes of the Philistines behind. And they fought off their enemies in David's faith. Do you understand that? In David's courage, in David's understanding of the covenant, suddenly it's making sense to them. They went in the name of David, who was in the name of the Lord God of Israel. And they applied, they implemented David's victory. And afterward, when it was all over and they came home with all their stories and their testimony and the treasures that they'd taken but really it was all about David David had summed them up it was David's faith in God's covenant that had reversed their unbelief had reversed their guilt and their shame and given them instead faith in the covenant and courage and the news spread out through all of Israel to little hamlets and villages into the cities where people knew nothing of what was going on down there in the valley of Elah. And so it was a matter of, you heard the news? Have you heard the news? It happened when you didn't know anything about it, but have you heard the news? You're free. The Philistine will never be able to take you. David carried us all in himself to victory. And it was at that time a new Israel came into being, the Israel we really talk about most of the time. Up until then, we don't talk much about Israel because they were a, just a heap of people. But after this, they emerged as a people of faith. They emerged in the blessing of God. They emerged as worship and singing and the praise of Mount Zion and so on and so on. Why is that so? Because David's faith now becomes the faith of the people. Saul, with his trust in self and flesh and manipulation, really, that was it. When, when Goliath fell at the hand of a shepherd, Saul was finished. Oh, he lived on. He lived on with one agenda, which was to kill David. But it was really over. 
Israel now was going to move in faith in the covenant God. Flesh gave way to spirit. Do you understand what I mean now? That Jesus is the direct descendant. I mean the flesh and blood descendant through Mary of David. That's what those genealogies are about in Matthew and Luke. Jesus is the ultimate and final Messiah, anointed one of the Spirit. David was essentially the first. Jesus continually said he was the good shepherd. The king of the kingdom of God is first of all the shepherd of his people. And we, we cowered before the lies and oppression of Satan, the monster, the tyrant. The Bible describes mankind as living all our days in fear, in guilt, in shame, before the accuser, Satan, cowering before the tyrant's lies, totally ignorant to the love of God and his covenant words. led, operated under the flesh, which the scripture says the mind of the flesh is death, it's hostile to God, into our world. And you see, this is, do you get this? God, you say, why didn't God just deliver mankind? Well, God's not a magician. He works according to his own most beautiful plan. And it was mankind in Adam that originated the great rebellion. And so now for that rebellion to be reversed and for Satan's authority to be taken away and for humankind to finally become what they were created to be, another human must do that. And so God so loved us that God became human in order that as one of us, of our race, of our flesh. Jesus is God, but God in flesh. God become human, one of us, totally so. A hundred percent human, authentic human, though he be God. And he must be tempted in all points like as we are. He had his lion and his bear. And he faced Satan, the tempter, who just like Saul dangled before him things that ought to have excited his senses. You've come, you, you want to take uh, the world, you want humans to follow you. Well, turn this stone into bread. Feed the people, they flock after you. Better than food stamps. You want people to follow you. I know how. You see, I'm brilliant at that. Jump off the temple and angels will catch you. Boy, that's better than a circus. But he says, no, no, no. 
I don't go with all of your armor. He comes in utter weakness. I think that's why Satan really did believe he'd get away with it when he crucified him. Looks so utterly, utterly weak. His only armor was that he loved his father and trusted his father and obeyed his father. And he comes to that place which is as geographical as the Valley of Elah. In fact, it was only a few miles away down the road there in Jerusalem. Became the, uh, it's a cosmic arena for what is happening there is a face-off between the one who represents the human race. Our destiny is wrapped up in Jesus. What happens to him happens to us. And facing him is the monster that towered, in the eyes of the human race anyway, all the might of the Roman Empire, which the Bible describes as a ghastly monster, and all the might of religion with teeth bared, they face off with he who is one of us, but more than one of us, you are in him. He created you, now he represents you. What happens to him happens to you. And he throws in his lot with us. He carries our shame. He carries our guilt. He becomes one of us. He became sin for us. He stood under the terrible authority of Satan. One of us. And he goes in faith in his father's plan, which he is one with. You come to me with a cross. You come to me with suffering and shame and sword. But I come to you in the name of the triune God. Love. And everything that happens to Jesus in that cosmic event that happens squarely in our history. It happened to us. And he is the final expression of the living God. He went into our death, our absolute dead end to life. And he rose out of it and said, I am the living one. I was dead. I am alive forevermore. He came out and he carried us out to a new creation filled with new possibility. Potential that we've never dreamed existed. He restarted the human race in himself. And he began a human race that would faith with his faith, that would trust with his trust, that would strength with his strength, that would run in his name and authority and pull down demonic strongholds. And we humans would say, we won. 
yet knowing all the time he won and he's our victory and he himself lives within us by his Holy Spirit. So I live, you see, yet it is not I that live. It is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Well, there it is. I trust that the Holy Spirit put that together for you. And I'm going to finish this off next week. Because there's another level to this. And we've only just got started. So, I now bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And my blessing is that the Holy Spirit shall open your eyes to see more clearly that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. To see that more clearly than you've ever seen it before. I bless you that every day of this week the light of God shall flow through you like waves of the ocean of his love and you shall know the hope to which you have been called in Christ so I bless you and declare over you that that is the way it is